Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. While you're listening, go to arcpodnet.com slash members and support our efforts. Let's get to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 180. On today's Timelines episode, we take a look at what was happening in 210 BCE in China, Rome, and India. Let's dig a little deeper, but not too deep. You'll cut off the head of a terracotta soldier. <laughs> Welcome to the show, everyone. How's it going? Pretty good. Where are we? We are. We have defected to Canada. <laughs> I wish under, we could defect to Canada. Under his eye. Oh, man. We've been watching Handmaid's <laughs> Tale, so <laughs> it feels all too real with some of the political stuff going on in our country right now, so it is kind of nice to be in Canada at the moment. I feel like we should have requested asylum just for fun. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't feel safe in the United States I know, right? as a woman anymore. Yeah. Anyway, whoops, sorry, getting a little political there. That's right. That's right. You know who else doesn't feel safe? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't even make any sense. It doesn't make any sense, but good job. Go ahead. Anybody in 210 BCE. Oh, uh, I yeah. see. I see yeah. what you're trying to do. All right. So yeah. it's a timelines episode. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So our timelines episodes are meant to shine a spotlight on a certain mm. event or a place or a thing even mm-hmm. in the archaeological and historical record and then look at what else is going on in the world at that same time. Right. So today our sort of anchor event, if you will, is the Terracotta Army in China. Mm-hmm. So we'll start by talking about that a little bit and then in segments two and three we will go to other places at the same time period in different parts of the world. What gets me about the Terracotta Army is that, I mean, China is a pretty well-populated place. It, there's it a lot it's of people there. It's a big country, though. It is a big country, but there's also a ton of people there, mm-hmm. and there's a ton of history. There's you know, yeah. a lot of ancestral knowledge about things, and nobody knew about these you know, ridiculously high number, like thousands of soldiers in terracotta existing within you know underground in this in this built in this structure and chamber Uh until 1974 i know like a (laughs) a couple well diggers were doing their well digging thing yeah (laughs) and they encountered the statues and ever since then it has been a protected site a place where excavations are ongoing but in a limited capacity and it's just a really really important site in mm-hmm. in China and for Chinese prehistory yeah so the terracotta army is basically protecting the tomb of the self-proclaimed first emperor of China and this is Qin Shi Huangdi Please forgive my pronunciation if that's incorrect. <laughs> I'm doing my best. Yeah. And he was the first emperor of China from 221 BCE to 210 BCE. So that's where we get the 210 as our date for timelines. It says self-proclaimed first emperor. Was he self-proclaiming himself emperor or self-proclaiming himself the first emperor? 
He's like, both? all you guys that came before me suck. Basically both. I mean, yeah. he was a king, of a, like a regional king, basically. And we'll talk about the, the history a little later in the episode. But through a series of conquests and just his style of ruling, he became the ruler of a larger area. And mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, I'm in charge of all this area. And also, I'm the first emperor. Hey, guys. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. Okay, so he basically started building his funerary complex almost as soon as he took over from his father in 246 BCE. I mean, he was building this thing and and had the idea for what this funerary complex would look like well before he ever became emperor and well before any of the, the big stuff that he ended up doing for China happened. Emperor Chen Shi Hongdi did not start as emperor, obviously. He took over from his father in 246 B- BCE when he was only 13 years old. Mm-hmm. And at that time, it was just a sort of smallish kingdom on the edges of Chinese society. Got and it. it wasn't a big a big thing to be emperor of mm-hmm. yet, right? But he, he was, had big plans. He was plans. a little country emperor. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Like, he had big <laughs> plans, though, and he had ideas on how to expand his territory. And he also, at the same time, started building this funerary complex that we know today and where the Terracotta Army is is part of it. Okay. And so there's an estimated seven to 8,000 soldiers, and they are all constructed of clay of terracotta right Mm -hmm. and they're amazing they're beautiful if you haven't seen pictures of them before you should go look because there's no two that are alike facial expressions are different clothing is different positions are all slightly different i think at one point they also had like actual real weapons like made of you know metal or whatever yeah that they're actually holding so like these guys were very realistic, very true to real life, and very different. There's some true artistry behind it. Really, really cool. It irritates me that the clothing's not alike because that's not very army-like. <laughs> they should have been in uniform. Well, but that that is actually kind of interesting, though, because not all of them are soldiers. And for a long mm-hmm. time, everybody thought it was just an army, right? Just an army of lined up. Uh, men who are protecting the emperor but there, there's also like terracotta musicians who of course are dressed differently and look differently and are different because they're musicians and there's bronze waterfowl statues too which are just made with incredible detail yeah. they're beautiful there's a bronze chariot with four horses they've just they found so much here it's not just an army it's a reproduction of the entire court of the emperor basically that's crazy do they have any representations of foods like terracotta's cheese <laughs> oh, or anything like that so bad <laughs> <laughs> leave it to you to make the bad dad joke <laughs> i want some terracotta's cheese <laughs> i'm gonna get some cottage cheese and put like some red food dye in it and something well, that would look really bad. Though. That would be really gross. Yeah. That's a terrible Not idea. Just red. Yeah. yeah. You know what? I might edit that out because that is like too gross <laughs> to even think about. Anyway. <laughs> so, yeah. So this this area, it's really like a, a reproduction of his entire court. It's it's really cool. And you and I have talked about this before. There's been a lot of recent studies, not just on excavations, but on the like ongoing mm-hmm. research on the terracotta soldiers themselves and the preservation is such an issue for this area and the when they uncover a new soldier it like is immediately starts to degrade when it hits the air so they have a lot of preservation issues to deal with and because of that they've actually only excavated about 1700 of the 7 to 8000 estimated soldiers just because you don't want to excavate something and then have it be destroyed it's yeah. better to leave it it interred in the Dirt that's protecting it at the moment. Did you see in your research how they know that there's seven to eight thousand if they've only excavated a small portion? I think they're just 
estimating based on the amount of land that they know soldiers are covering. Mm. And it is, it is just an estimate. I suppose they could get into that area and find that there's not more soldiers somewhere that they thought there were. Yeah. So, but it, it's just an estimate. Hmm. And it covers an area of 22 square miles too. So like that's, that's a large, gigantic, that's yeah. a large area. Yeah. The tomb of the emperor though, still hasn't been excavated. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. Because they want to try to preserve it. They're not sure what they're going to find. And Yeah. 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 One of the guys in the article is quoted as worrying that there could be like silk or paper or other really, really fragile items in this tomb. And they just don't want to expose those to air and have them degrade or decompose immediately. Yeah. 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 But they haven't probed it or anything. And not in the, in the articles I read, they hadn't done any yeah. work into the tomb specifically. Hmm. So, and I think in part this is like a, a Chinese cultural thing too. They have a lot of respect for the the man that was the first emperor of mm-hmm. the nation, and they just don't really want to disturb him too, right? To some extent, I mean, you know, science will always win out, of course. But I mean, I've seen this movie. If you disturb him, that terracotta <laughs> army comes to life <laughs> yeah. and destroys you, right? Yeah. Oh man, that would be a really good movie. Actually. <laughs> right? There has to be some sort of B movie out there where the terracotta, terracotta army, army comes to life. to life. I love it. Oh man, National Treasure Five. National Chinese treasure? Yeah, I mean, you know, Maybe. they can go around somewhere. Oh, my God. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about who this emperor was, because he did some really cool things for for China in this like pivotal time period where they're sort of coming together and becoming the nation that they are today. Mm-hmm. So he was born Ying Zheng, and he succeeded to the throne in 246 BCE, right after his father died, as I said. And they were just kings of like a fringe kingdom. They were known for being excellent horsemen, but had there's a, a, a view of them as being like semi-savage, ruled by harsh laws. This is what the history documents tell us about what other other groups perceive them to be. I think I'd be pretty angry as a kingdom if I were semi-savage. <laughs> I either want to be all the way savage or not savage. <laughs> right. Right? It's like, you're just kind of <laughs> savage well part of the reason why they were they called them savage is because they they had this idea that is called today legalism i'm not sure if it was called that back then but the idea is that they make the penalties for breaking the law so harsh that no one would dare risk it and the people that do break the law become like the examples right so that you don't dare risk that kind of punishments Yes, they did that in Star Trek The Next Generation when Wesley <laughs> fell into the garden. Oh my God, that's right. On the planet that has oh, that's right. random zones random. where if you break any law, you the penalty is death. Yeah, exactly. So why risk death? Don't why break risk any laws. death? Just don't do it. Yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> basically the same exact thing. That's so funny. Um, so yeah, so the rest of China at this time basically followed Confucianism, which is this happy feely you know love feeling type of thing where a well-run state should be administered by the same precepts governing a family mutual obligation and respect crazy talk i know so so the guys following that philosophy were kind of easy pickings for somebody like ying Zhang, who came in with the harsh penalties and the harsh laws and and probably did a lot of killing of people and wrangled all of these areas around him under his control. Mm-hmm. And as his empire grew, he renamed himself to Qin Shi Huangdi, the first emperor of Qin in 221 BCE. Yeah, so that's, right. that's, that's how that happened. That's the whole progression from small French kingdom to first emperor of China. Yeah, and it's difficult to gain... I guess, dominion over a large area quickly without having some sort of penalties, some sort of harsh, you know, regulation. So, 
but you can't maintain control. Oh, that with falls the apart pretty quick. Yes. And this is something that I think has been overlooked a little bit in history is the things that his empire did to help maintain control and maintain communication amongst all of these mm-hmm. sort of disparate regions that he brought together. He created a uniform or he promoted a uniform system of writing known as small seal script. So all of a sudden communication between all these different groups became possible because they all were communicating in the same language. He also standardized currency and he standardized weights and measures. So all of those things becoming the same across this large area meant that people were speaking the same language in all different ways through money, through language, through weight, the weight and measure of things, you know, like all of that becomes standardized and you can make a true empire out of a place when everybody is speaking the same language. Makes it easier to maintain control too. When you come in and say, you know, hey, if you step a foot out of line, we'll literally murder you, but we've given you all these great benefits. Yeah. So people (laughs) kind of ignore that stuff for a little while until they can't. Right. Uh, yeah, and other things too, because it's all about the communication, right? And and keeping control of these people in different areas. And so he, a huge road network ended up being built. And also, he fortified the border with the northern steppes, which is where you know the true savages were out on the steps. Yeah, <laughs> and and that later became the Great Wall. In this time period, it's more just like a a berm, essentially. Man, there is no original pop culture, is there? Because this just sounds like Monty Python, too, right? <laughs> like the life of Brian when they're standing there in the in the Colosseum area, and they're going, "Okay, so aside from the currency, the writing, and the roads, what else has the emperor done for us?" Oh my god, that's so funny. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we can always make fun of things that have happened in the past. That That is something we as humans will do forever going forward. Yeah, yeah. Yep. It wasn't all good, though. No, no. I mean, all these things did help lay the foundation for a unified China. Mm-hmm. However, there were harsh laws and harsh penalties. And one of those things, and they are known for this, is book burnings. Yeah. Specifically, the Confucian texts that had played a large role in the previous and in all these areas that had been brought underneath the chin control. Well, I mean, we do this today, right? We, we take down Confederate memorials in the United States because it popularizes an ideology Mm -hmm. that's dead now, Yeah, you know, and it's, it it is a way to exert control. Mm -hmm. You know, nowadays I would say more educated people look at some of this stuff as learning from history. Um, And maybe you shouldn't, just to use the the local example of the Confederacy, you shouldn't have like a a memorial or a Confederate flag flying in a state area, but it should be in a museum, should be a place where people can learn about that history and study it. This is how we would handle that, I would assume, today. But... That's even hard to say because you look at some places in the Middle East where, you know, uh, harsh regimes are taking over uh, and, and, you know, having coups against the the ruling political. Mm -hmm. They're pulling down statues. They're doing everything they can to erase the image of the the prior regime. Yeah. So. Well, and it's interesting that you say that because that's essentially what happened at the end of Emperor Qin's control here. So he's the first emperor of China, but for this dynasty, he is for all intents and purposes the last one. Yeah. It it fell apart after he died. He tried to pass control to his oldest son who he'd been grooming to take his position, 
right? But he died younger than expected. I think he was only 49 and he he contracted some kind of disease or some mm-hmm. kind of problem. And he died and there was an advisor. There's always an advisor, right? There's always a Rasputin. The Grand Vizier. <laughs> yeah, who, who undermined him and tried to instead put a more malleable younger son on the throne. Mm-hmm. Chaos ensued, of course, because I think the older son was trying to to take power back and there's just like fighting back and forth and when that happens it's just the empire just starts falling apart right and at this time many of the terracotta soldiers appear to have been deliberately broken or burned yeah and so there's a bit of an assumption here that this was happening at this time um, I'm not sure if they've dated the burning and the, the breaking right, to right. that time period I don't know if you can date it to then but it does show that it's possible that the quick collapse of the Qin dynasty this was a symptom of it. Mm -hmm. But I mean, he still unified a large chunk of China. And by doing that, he created a foundation for the Han dynasty to come a century or so later and pick up the pieces and then become one of the most important dynasties in Chinese prehistory. So there you go. Do you think his descendants, when the the Hans took over, were like, Han? (laughs) Yes. Yes, I do. Star Trek reference number two, by the way. <laughs> Are we? Do we need to have a Star Trek reference drinking game? I think we might. <laughs> They've just done so much good in the world. The, well, they have. The yeah. future world. That's right. But yes. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, so that's the Terracotta Army. That's a little bit about the archaeology and then about the man the man behind the Terracotta Army. Mm-hmm. So where to next? Well, we're going to head over to, well, basically North Africa and the Second Punic War because nobody remembers the First Punic War. Hey everyone, Chris Webster from the APN here. We have used a number of solutions for recording our podcast with interesting people from around the world. None have worked better than Zencaster. For the last several years, we've been using Zencaster for high quality recordings that are easy to do and put little to no stress on the guest. And now Zencaster has high quality video and even automatic transcription. So click the link in the show notes or head over to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use the code TAS to get 30% off your first three months of the pro plan. If you're starting a podcast anytime soon, it's totally worth it. Again, click the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months. And they even give a little back to us when you do. Keep this conversation going by joining our members-only Slack team. There's always vibrant conversations going on over there between members and hosts about the topics we're podcasting about and more. Also get access to our back catalog of bonus material and ad-free shows. You get all this for $7.99 a month or less than $80 US per year if you get the annual subscription. Support archaeological education and outreach by supporting the APN. Go to arcpodnet.com slash members for details. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. 
LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 180, and we are doing timelines, 210 BC. Yeah. And we are heading from China to North Africa. Yeah. So I was looking for what other interesting things were going on in the world in 210 BCE. And it turns out that Rome and Carthage were embroiled in the Second Punic War right at that time period. So it was kind of perfect to talk about them and what was going on there um, with that series of conflicts that happened over, gosh, like half a century, basically. Yeah. So the Punic Wars were a series of wars, again, that took place between Carthage and Rome in North Africa, which is so crazy to me because North Africa, I don't know. I mean, I know Rome controlled like much of the Mediterranean, but I always, I always just kind of forget North Africa is there. You know what I mean? Like you've got Egypt over on one side and you've got, you know, uh, just a whole coastline there that's North Africa, but I just always kind of forget about it. Yeah. And these, these cities or city states basically that were along the Mediterranean, they were constantly battling for control over the Mediterranean sea basically, because it was really important for trading and, you know, Mm -hmm. building your society. So it, it makes sense that Rome would want to have control over everything and therefore, you know, get into battles with, with somebody like Carthage from North Africa who had the manpower and the, ability to to go to war with them so yeah yeah and something i didn't actually know that i'd like to know a little bit more about is the romans actually called the carthaginians phoenicians they did they yeah. were the phoenicians mm-hmm. and that's why they called this the punic wars it's a right. derivative of phoenician of phoenician yeah. yeah which is i'm like you were at war for a long time do you just calling them that to be jerks or you know it's a really good question yeah like was that just what the romans called them because it suited their language but they saw themselves as the Carthaginians, so that's mm-hmm. why we, looking back on history, call them the Carthaginians. I'm not really sure what the linguistic roots of all that is. Right. So the First Punic War was from 264 to 241 BCE. So right around the same time that our little emperor over in China is getting started, <laughs> yeah. Rome and Carthage are going through the First Punic War. And just the quick gist of it is that Rome won. They grabbed control of southern Italy, Sicily, Sardinia, Corsica, all those islands around Italy. Yeah. And because of that, they were, most importantly, they're, they're in charge of the Mediterranean seas, basically, all mm-hmm. around Italy. So that's what happened there. Carthage was still a great power and they still had their power over in North Africa and they weren't done. <laughs> they, yeah. were, they were not ready to let go of the control. And so war broke out again in 218 BCE. Mm-hmm. So just three short years after the first emperor of China, after Qin declared himself the first emperor of China. Yeah. He's like, look at all this land I've got. I've got China. In the meantime, <laughs> yeah. Rome is on its way. Rome, yeah. One Carthage at a time. Rome, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, Carthage, Carthage is trying to stand in Rome's way. So That would have been something if Rome had ended up, you know, branching out that far. And I know there was some stretches over into the Asian continent, of course, but mm-hmm. never really like a battle with China. Yeah. You know? Yeah, because they had the Greeks on the other side of them who were mm-hmm. kind of pushing out into Asia more. Yeah. and. You know, Greeks and Romans, they overlapped a, a, a bit, but yeah. it the Romans never really got past the Greeks over into Asia too much. Yeah. So, anyway. It's just it's just interesting to me that 
mostly because of geography. Mm-hmm. And despite what you might think of Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steel, he talks a lot about kind of like why things happened in the world the way that they did. And a mm-hmm. lot of it in his eye is based on geography. Mm-hmm. It was just difficult. Yeah. You know, there are entire mountain ranges, Mount Everest. You have to literally climb Mount Everest. Well, mm-hmm. not literally, but it's neighbors to get between Rome and China. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just, there are so many logistical obstacles and then trying to run an empire across those kind of distances. Yeah. Would be almost impossible. The logistics you know? of that is pretty yeah. insane, and it does it does look impossible. It's impossible today, yeah. where we have amazing communication methods, but there still isn't one single country that yeah. rules everything. Even no, though the trying. United States would like to think that it does, but well, there's a lot of countries <laughs> that like to think that they do. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> but you know what wasn't yeah. big? The Mediterranean, <laughs> right? And Carthage hopped over the Mediterranean from North Africa and decided to use Spain as as its like base of operations to build up power. Yeah. 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 And there they found the famous Hannibal. He becomes one of the most highly regarded war generals in history. And at this time in Spain, he basically started helping the Carthaginians to, to attack Rome and try and gain back the power that they had lost in the first Punic War. This guy would have marched to China because he looked at the Alps uh, <laughs> or in northern Italy, between Spain and northern yeah. Italy, well, really France and northern Italy, yeah, yeah. and was like, mountains, F mountains, I'm doing it. <laughs> I can do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's well known for that march through the Alps into northern Italy with a gigantic army. Yeah. He apparently started out with elephants. I guess the elephants didn't make it through the mountains. Not surprising. Probably not really suited to to that sort of weather. I mean, he got elephants to Spain, though. Yeah. Because oh, I don't well, think elephants were in Spain, No, they of must have come Mammoths from Africa. Mammoths were back in the day. Yeah. But yeah, that's crazy. Not at this time, no. No, no, no. They, they came over from Africa for sure. And I'm not really sure what the point in having elephants were. They're just threatening looking. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. But but no, they they did not make it through the trek through the mountains. Right. So, yeah. Now, the plan for Hannibal was to get into northern Italy and get the northern Italians to rise against Rome. Mm-hmm. But that didn't work. <laughs> he spent 11 years. He got through the Alps, which was a feat in itself. And then he spent 11 years campaigning through central and northern Italy, trying to get these people to rise up and join him against Rome. Mm-hmm. And he, they just never they just never did it. And as a result, he left like devastation in his wake, basically, yeah. because there it's an army. An army needs to eat. An army needs supplies and all the other things to keep going. So that he he didn't leave a lot of good feelings behind and Mm -hmm. yeah so his plan did not work now in the meantime rome who is under the command of scipio he gets control over coastal spain and was able to launch an attack on carthage from there so hannibal while he's still in northern italy he's recalled to defend carthage because obviously they need to keep their home home city protected and so that's how he ends up leaving Italy and going back to Carthage. But but he is eventually defeated. Mm-hmm. And the war ended around 205 BCE with Rome as the victor. There's obviously a lot more to that story. If, story There's if so he's much more. Yeah. One of the most regarded war generals and just like returns home in defeat. Yeah, I know. It's crazy that like the the ending of the story is that yeah. he, he didn't win. <laughs> but I think his military tactics and the things that he did, even though they didn't work, were just brand new and they just yeah just revolutionized the way to think yeah. about war and how to how to do it so yeah 
So at this point, Rome is at the height of its power. Carthage did remain a separate state, but they had to pay a massive indemnity over 50 years. Mm -hmm. And it just was, there's just like a lot of bad blood between them. And at this time, Rome controlled, you know, as a result uh, mm-hmm. of that and other conflicts, the entire Western Mediterranean from Spain all the way to Italy and all the islands in between. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So I was doing this research, right? And I'm like, okay, that's cool. This is just history. It's written in the ancient texts. It's what we know from the victors, right? Because who writes the history books? The victors yeah. do. And I was like, where is the archaeological evidence to support the things that the ancient texts tell us right Mm -hmm. so i went searching for that and what i found is a somewhat recent paper written in the last like five years or so about archaeological evidence for the battle of bacula and now this battle took place in 208 bce yeah if you'll remember our timeline is 210 so i was like yes two years (laughs) that's perfect it's within two years of the time i'm shooting for (laughs) and this battle took place on the south coast of spain And what they're doing is trying to find the archaeological evidence for this battle. When you do that, it's called either conflict archaeology or battlefield archaeology. And it's a whole separate like field of archaeology, basically, because battles take place over a couple of days. Mm -hmm. So what is left for archaeologists to look for and to analyze when when something only happens over a a two day span of time? It's just a very different type of archaeology when you're when you're looking at that. Yeah, you really have to kind of specialize in this and understand how battles work, mm-hmm. you know, but you, you've got to look at the time frame as well, because yeah. battlefield archaeology, when you're looking at, say, you know, the American Civil or Revolutionary War is very different mm-hmm. than when you're looking at, you know, Rome battling Carthage. Right. You know, you have to understand battle tactics, understand, you know, did they fight at night? Did they have, you know, trenches? Did mm-hmm. they, you know, what kind of things to do? So, you know, what kind of what you're looking for. Yeah. So there's a lot of historical records research that has to go into understanding how two entities would have battled each other to understand what you're seeing in the archaeological record in the landscape. Yeah, totally. And one of the things that they did in this study is it was more like a dispersion of artifacts map so that they could see because they know which artifacts belong to which side. And so you could see, you know, you had an encampment of the one group over here and then another encampment over here and then the different weapons that they were using. Mm -hmm. And you could see, you can see like paths and like, Oh, okay. So these spears were getting thrown this direction and you know, from here to here and they all landed in this area. So they, they kind of could like use this mapping to kind of get an idea of where people were, where they were engaging in battle and where the different types of weapons were ending up. Right. Maybe not spears. I guess bow and arrow is a little bit more likely right. what they were using. But but that kind of archaeology. So really interesting. And just not your typical like open excavation kind of a thing. And they're more using like GPR and that kind of thing to make these dispersion maps of artifacts. I think they had spears. Javelins. They had, yeah, they might have. Javelins yeah. were big in yeah. Roman society. So the other thing is I'm I'm this art this article I found is behind a paywall. So I'm all, all of this is coming from like the abstract and some of the notes that they release publicly. Right, so right. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so of course we know that historical writings are written by the victors. They can be skewed because of that viewpoint. And the archaeology is hopefully going to present a more unbiased view. And what they've determined from looking at this specific battle is that the two generals that are involved, one of them is Hasdrubal Barca, which would be the... Carthaginian side of the battle and then Scipio who is the Roman and it was a decisive victory for Scipio and we knew that from the historical records we knew that it was a decisive Roman victory however 
when you look at the archaeological record, you can see that from the place that Hasdrubal decided to place his army and where they were camped and what they were doing, it's almost like he anticipated defeat, Mm -hmm. set himself up to be able to escape quickly and easily with the bulk of his army and be able to rejoin Hannibal and then have their army and most importantly, the money that they need to keep the army going intact. And I don't know if it's anticipated defeat. That's almost like he expected defeat, but it's good. ready for it. Right. It's good to have an escape plan. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It just shows like really smart war planning on his part to the, in the places that he chose to be camped, just looking at the topography around and all that kind of stuff and, and stuff like that. So the victors are not going to give a lot of credit to the person that was defeated, sure. and they probably didn't in the ancient text, but we can look and see that this general was clearly making some very, very smart decisions to preserve his army as much as he possibly could and live to fight another I mean, day. This is why I back into RV sites. <laughs> I need a quick escape. quick escape. It has nothing to do with how the services and utilities are set up. I need to be able to get out and get out quick. That's why you sit with your back to the wall in a restaurant, too. Absolutely. You need to be able to get out and you get to, to see mark your, your surroundings. Exits. I look around the restaurant. I know all the license plates of the vehicles in the parking lot. Oh, my God. I know that the guy at the counter is 225 pounds and knows how to handle himself. It's another pop culture reference. I'm not going to say which one. Yeah. You yeah. Know that's her. like a 20-year-old reference right if you there. Know, you know, you so. know. Yep. All right. Okay. Well, that's good for that one. Uh, they were having a good time there in North Africa and <laughs> Spain and Northern Italy. Lots of battling. Lots of battling. That seems to be the name of the game in this time period anyway. Yep, yep. Lots of battling. So let's go from there over to some people who were trying to consolidate power, but also be a little bit more chill about it and, you know, just take over a huge area. And that place is India. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks. Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Did you know we have lots of great shows on the Archaeology Podcast Network? Head over to arcpodnet.com and you can see all the shows that are currently producing podcasts. Scroll down a bit more and you'll see some great shows from the past that still have great content. Search for your favorite shows on your podcasting app or listen right on the page at arcpodnet.com. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show Timelines episode for 210 BCE. It's episode 180. And our final segment is going to India. Yeah. The Mauryan Empire. I'm going to call I'm going to go with Mauryan. M A U R Y A N. Yeah, Mauryan. So this empire was formed around 321 BCE and ended around 185 BCE in India as mm-hmm. I said. Yeah, so 
right crossing our 210 timeline time. (laughs) Which is the cool thing about timelines. Yeah. So at the same time, a massive battles are taking place in, you know, Rome, Carthage, you know, between those two guys Mm -hmm. and, and other things, because this is a bigger timeline than that. And there's emperor changes going on in China. Mm -hmm. This is happening in India. Right. And it's just like stuff is happening all over the world. And people get so centralized in their thinking about their own personal area. Right. And it's just like, man, the world is a lot bigger than that. Yeah. That's that's what I love about these episodes is getting that broader viewpoint of everything that's going on at the same time, because there is so much and Mm -hmm. one is not better than the other. There might be somebody who's stronger than the other at a certain time, but, but the prehistory of everywhere in the world is just, it's super interesting and super important too. And yeah, no one is better than the other. No. So they're all cool and interesting. And what's cool about this too, and I don't know if it's just we randomly pick this time period or what, but you've got, you know, Rome expanding its influence pretty greatly. Yep. You've got the first Chinese emperor. Mm-hmm. And here you've got the first pan-Indian empire. Yeah. There were a lot of regionals. Mm-hmm. And this is the first one to just kind of take over all of India yep. and say, you know, we're, we're one big area here. Yeah. So. I was really excited about this one too because... I don't know anything about Indian archaeology or Indian prehistory. It, Like, I had never heard of the Mauryan Empire at mm-hmm. all. So I thought it would be really cool to talk about something that I had never heard of, just guessing that other people like me probably wouldn't have heard of it yeah. either. So the first leader of this empire was Chandragupta Maurya. That's where we get the name. That's where we get the name. Yeah. Got it. And yeah. he started to consolidate land as Alexander the Great's power began to wane. So this is right at the end of the time Alexander the Great busted through there and started taking over places. But yeah. So his power over the area, his legacy, basically, mm-hmm. was starting to wane. Alexander the Great's was. Mm-hmm. And other people were starting to look around going, you know, all right, what are we going to do here? Mm-hmm. You know, this is our this is our country. What are we going to do? Yeah. When Alexander the Great died in 323 BCE, this basically opened the door for Mm -hmm. regional people. And one of those was Chandragupta. Yeah. I mean, when Alexander the Great died, he left like a huge void, right? Because he was very young and he had just done a lot of this conquering Mm -hmm. all the way over to India, which is insane to think. Coming from Greece all the way over to India, we were just talking in the previous segment about how hard it was to do that. And here is a guy Mm -hmm. that did it. But then he died. <laughs> yeah. He leaves this huge hole. Everybody starts warring. And, and like you said, it opened the door for Chandra Gupta to, yep. to solidify his power and begin the Mauryan Empire. Yeah. So along this time, he was gathering an army uh, locally and overthrew kind of one of his neighbors. The Nanda power it was called mm. in a place called Magadha in what's now Eastern India. Okay. Of course, India didn't exist as a country back then. Right, right. We didn't know it as India. Where every time we say India... Just assume like the Indian subcontinent and mm-hmm. that area, but yeah. it wasn't actually India at right. the time. We're talking about it geographically speaking, yes, not, yes. not from a country standpoint. No, no, no. Yeah. yeah. So, but this was basically the start of his empire. Mm-hmm. This, this starting to to gather these land resources together. Yep. One of his chief ministers, Kautilya. Again, K A U T I L Y A, is known for being a political strategist and wrote a a text, basically a treatise called the Artha Shastra. Artha Shastra. Artha Shastra. Artha That's a cool Shastra. word. I like yeah. it. Yeah. They got a lot of cool words in India. They do. Yeah. yeah. A lot of sh sounds and they mm-hmm. make really cool things. Yeah. The Artha Shastra. Uh, and that's a treatise about leadership and government, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of a harsh document and kind of a harsh, uh, you know, leadership style. 
so oh, to speak. Sounds familiar, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, it actually focused on having spies oh. and recommended that the king have a massive network of informants to stay oh. basically informed about the people. Yeah, and again, yeah. we're in an era where communication is one of the biggest challenges to running yeah. any large enterprise, whether it's a business, mm-hmm. you know, you know, if you're if you're building Buddhist temples in China and you're a big family, you know, hearkening mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> back to the oldest. Right. If you haven't heard our bonus episode, you would know. But anyway, yep. yeah, this is uh, this is one of the biggest challenges. So he wrote this document about basically leadership and things like that and focusing on having these informants and spies. Makes sense. Yeah. I mean, snitches get stitches, though, so uh, watch I'll out. Tell you what. Yeah. <laughs> no, it makes sense that you would have a spy network to keep you informed and those people would be rewarded and other people would be afraid of doing things because they might get reported. And it's all this, this system of kind of like the legalism thing going on over in China. So, yeah. Now, of course, the way to keep a a budding empire going is to have good descendants. Uh You need to set up a system, a good system in place that actually, you know, people aren't too unhappy with because your, your people need to be happy otherwise you're completely subjugating them and that just takes a lot of effort Mm -hmm. and also you need to have people take over if you're going to make a dynasty out of this like a family dynasty that also don't suck Mm -hmm. right so you got to educate them well as well but Chandra Gupta's son Bindusara assumed the throne in 300 BCE and he kept things running pretty well Mm -hmm. uh, basically towing the family line Mm -hmm. and then his son Ashoka really changed everything for India Mm -hmm. and 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 these what he did has ramifications going on through to today. Right. And it, it, Ashoka is seen as, well, we'll get, in, we'll get into that a little later to cancel all that. So Ashoka erected these stone pillars inscribed with the edicts that he issued mm-hmm. as, as a way to, you know, run a good society. But mm-hmm. he, he erected these stone pillars, thousands of them, all across India. Oh, so like a communication method? Kind of well, like Umbridge with her her declarations on wow. the wall. Oh, pulp culture. Yeah. <laughs> Although that was only one place, but like if you yeah. if you create an edict and say something, you have right. to have a place to put it so people know about it. So exactly. yeah. Yeah. These were so these inscriptions were some of the oldest deciphered original texts of India, mm. which is really cool. Mm-hmm. And they're still existing in a lot of places. Yeah, yeah that's you can really still see cool. Them. We'll get into uh, a little more of that in a bit here, but how Ashoka expanded the empire. I mean he was you know, touting Buddhism and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But he also went to war. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he expanded by warring with the Kalinga, a region of the central eastern coast of what is now India. Mm-hmm. After that campaign, though, he just kind of got disenfranchised with war. He didn't yeah. like it. He didn't like the way of doing that. He reevaluated his commitment to expansion and turned instead to Buddhism and the tenets of Buddhism of nonviolence. Yeah, okay. And that's what the edicts were all about. Oh, this nonviolent. Okay way of not only expansion but you know just bringing people into this mm-hmm. into your society in a nonviolent way. Yeah, I mean that there's definitely something to be said for that. It doesn't yeah. always have to be violence all the time, right? Yeah. You can go for this nonviolent peaceful way and maybe people are happy to join up and be part of your society. And I don't know if this is the first historical I don't know evidence of like missionary work. Mhm. I doubt it. I highly doubt it. Mm-hmm. But it's the first one I've heard of. And his notion, again, after that conquest and his kind of conversion into Buddhism, his notion of conquest was to convert people, basically. Right. And he would send out thousands of uh, essentially missionaries. Right. They're Buddhist emissaries. Right. right? He would mm-hmm. send these out throughout Asia. And as a result, 
of, you know, sending these people out. And then, you know, just like any church would, they had artistic representation. Mm -hmm. They commissioned some of the finest works of ancient Indian art. You know, what we know now is ancient Indian art related to Buddhism in this time frame. So all of this and those edicts the on the on the statues, mm -hmm. all of this was a, in a way to, you know, just keep people reading Connected. what he wanted them to read and, yeah. and connecting them, like you said. Yeah, 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 totally. That is really interesting. I mean, we've seen missionaries used throughout history yeah. to bring cultures under the control just by using religion, essentially, to yeah. you know convert them to your religion, and then all of a sudden they're subject to your laws. So to know that that's how he managed to do that, I can't really fault him for it because it is a more peaceful way. Yeah. And, I mean, it probably did do good for people. Mm -hmm. I mean, you never want to subject people to your religious viewpoints. I don't think that's a good thing. But in this time period, if if it was either war or missionaries, I think I would take missionaries personally. Well, and if you're going to take any religion and try to convert people to it, Buddhism is one that yeah. it's, uh, it's widely recognized. In fact, a lot of atheists are Buddhists Yeah, because Buddhism doesn't really center necessarily around revering some sort of god or deity yeah. it really is more of a commitment to peaceful nonviolence and, yeah. and education mm -hmm. so yeah it's um yeah and and that's something that's easy for people to see it's like oh yeah this is a cool thing we'll join you guys mm -hmm. versus you killed my family i guess i have to follow you now and all of it's nonviolent, which yeah. is great because yeah. there's a lot of violence wrapped up in the other religions missionaries too right. there, there can be so yeah. And you can tell how popular he was because Ashoka is considered one of the most famous rulers in Indian history, mm -hmm. you know, uh, of all time. Yeah. However, when he died, he didn't have quite the legacy going on. Um, mm. His family continued to reign, but they had a declining influence. Uh, he was really the, the guiding force for all this. And nobody, yeah. I guess he was too much almost, right? Mm -hmm. And nobody could really fill those shoes after he died. Yeah. The last of the Mauryans, whose name was Berded Ratha, uh, was actually assassinated by his commander-in-chief. Oh, so okay. they're like, all right, no more yeah. of you guys. Um, the commander-in-chief's name was Pushi... I can't get these names right. <laughs> Pushi Amrita. Pushi Amrita. Mm -hmm. Pushi Amrita. Pushi Amrita. Pushi Amrita. Yeah. He went on to found the Shunga dynasty in 185 BC, and that, that went on for a little while. So, okay. Anyway, it was, a, it was a long time, and they changed a lot about what India is seen they created i guess i should say a lot about what we see of is india today mm -hmm. you know it and really brought together these different groups yeah. of people under one peaceful rule it sounds yeah. like it might have been like a really nice place to live other than the spies that would tell on you if you're doing things wrong but right. other than that i mean you still got to keep that, control over people but aside from the spies and the art and the edicts <laughs> What did Ashoka ever do for India? Oh my god! <laughs> no, it sounds like a really, really great place, and I, I just love to hear a more peaceful empire, a more peaceful approach to ruling people. It's, yeah, you don't see a lot of that in history, so that's really cool. Right, right. All right. Well, that's pretty much the end of our timelines episode. Mm -hmm. So, if you've got any suggestions for us uh, as anchor events, or maybe even a collection of three ideas uh, mm -hmm. feel free to send those along uh, you can comment on the episodes don't do it in like a like an itunes review or something like that we don't get notification of that kind of thing yeah no that's yeah, yeah but that's, if you comment over at arcpodnet.com forward slash archaeology and in this case forward slash 180 for the episode number or really any episode we will see that mm -hmm. um, or you can email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or hit us up on facebook or wherever you wherever you see us definitely all right well that's it for now we're gonna go 
enjoy some Canadian countryside. <laughs> and we'll be back next time with, uh, I don't know, something else. Something else. All right. Who knows what's coming up? See you then. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. This is Chris Webster, founder of the APN and one of the chief editors. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. If you want to keep the conversation going and support us along the way, go to arcpodnet.com slash members. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. And thanks for listening. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.